Hello everyone, welcome back to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Dave Lipscomb, Director of Strategic Communications at PBI. This week, in her last appearance on the Pro Bono Happy Hour before heading off to law school, PBI's Eva Richardson spoke with Ben Weinberg of Dentons. Ben talked to us about his career, offered tips for those interested in running a pro bono program at a major law firm, and shared some inspiring stories about his experiences as a pro bono lawyer. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Hi, Ben. Thanks for joining us on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. We're really excited to be able to talk with you today. Great. It's my pleasure. So uh, I'd like to start off by kind of discussing your role at Dentons. Um, so you are the mm-hmm. firm's pro bono partner. And on your website, uh, the firm's described as a polycentric global law firm. So can you explain mm-hmm. what this means and how this impacts your role as pro bono partner? Sure. What that means is we don't have one headquarters. Mm-hmm. We are not a New York firm. We're not a London firm. We're not a Chicago firm. We're not a Beijing firm. The idea was um, as we formed the firm, we wanted to be – um, in and of the community in terms of our, our billable work, that we're not just sort of parachuting in to a country because the market is good. We're mm-hmm. part of, of the country. Um, and that's been very true about pro bono work. So it has given um, me and the firm the opportunity to do some very, very cool pro bono work all over the world because our lawyers, again, we, it's not like we have New York lawyers who are, are in our Riyadh office their Saudi lawyers, mm-hmm. um, and they tend to be much uh, clo- more closely connected to the community, uh, which means they're also more interested in doing pro bono work. So it's been very, um, that orientation of the firm is very helpful for me. Great. And do you have um, different pro bono professionals in each office that help you oversee the program? Or? Um, only in my dreams. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> we actually, um, we, uh, uh, we have... Um, as of as of today, July twenty whatever it is, twenty six mm-hmm. something. Um, I am the only full time lawyer. We have um, some full time uh, professional staff, right. uh, but we will be having another full time lawyer in our Europe region oh, okay. as of Monday. Oh, great, nice. Um, and I'm interested to hear about your personal journey as a public interest interest lawyer, um, and how you came to have the job you have now. Well, uh, I will say uh, at the outset, I didn't plan my career uh, to have this job, Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, I planned my career to be a legal aid lawyer. So Uh I went to Northeastern Law School in Boston to be a legal aid lawyer. I wanted to come back to Chicago and work at um, LAF, which is the the LSC uh, legal aid grantee Mm -hmm. in Chicago. Um, And I was fortunate enough to be hired by LAF, and so that's... That's all I wanted to do. Uh, I wanted to represent individual low-income people. Um, I was in the Englewood neighborhood office, very uh, low-income, south side neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw individual clients. It was fantastic. I did a lot of domestic violence. I did abuse and neglect, representing parents whose kids had been taken away wrongly. Uh, Loved it. and uh, never planned to do anything else. Uh, I was going to spend the next 60 years there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we had our first child. Uh, we were going to have our first child, and my wife, who's a clinical social worker, mm-hmm. uh, decided she was going to stay home with our child. And the one salary 
LAF salary was just not going to cut it. Um, and I was starting to look around, and I got a chance to clerk for a judge on the uh, Seventh Circuit, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit, Judge William J. Bauer. Uh, and so I took a leave of absence from LAF and clerked. And then once I was done clerking, it was clear for salary reasons that I, I couldn't stay at LAF. And I ended up going to a law firm, mm-hmm. which I never was going to do, had no interest in. And uh, I was going to stay maybe a year just to see what it was like. And seven years later, I'd been a partner for two years mm-hmm. at Jenner and Block, which um, is you know, if you look at the like AMLAW pro bono rankings is most years is always at the top. Um, We did a ton of pro bono work. I did a death penalty case and a lot of other work with my old LAF friends. But I wanted, uh, after seven years, it was enough. Um, And I wanted to go back to being a public interest lawyer. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had a newly elected attorney general in Illinois, Lisa Madigan, who was a progressive Democrat, first woman elected. And I took a flyer and left my equity partnership at Jenner and Block and joined her senior staff uh, about four months after she had been elected, after she took office. And I was chief of the public interest division, which meant I was in charge of affirmative public interest litigation against tobacco companies and utility companies and uh, uh, on behalf of people with disabilities and civil rights mm-hmm. um, work. And so it was fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. Loved it because I was a public interest lawyer with subpoena power, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which is really fantastic. Um, it was a very sort of logical outgrowth to my original legal aid work, we were doing the same, we were on behalf of the same people, it just, we had much more power and authority because we were doing it on behalf of all of the people. Um, And so I did that and had great experiences. We really built the office. Uh, I did that for five years. And then out of the blue, I got a call from a friend at what Denton's was called then, which Mm -hmm. was Sun and Shine, Nathan Rosenthal. And uh, they told me they were looking for a pro bono partner. And I said, what's that? Mm -hmm. I had never heard right. of the position. Um, I wasn't familiar yet. I mean, the Association of Pro Bono Counsel, ABCO, had just been formed, yeah, yeah. but I, I didn't know about the position. Um, and they explained, and I interviewed, and fortunately I was hired. Uh, that was about eight years ago, mm-hmm. and I have been the pro bono partner ever since. Wow. Wow, that's really fascinating. That's um, kind of been all over. In regards to your current job now, what are some of your favorite aspects, and what are some of your least favorite? Well, my my most, I mean, I think most favorite aspect of, or I guess you would actually say that my favorite aspect <laughs> um, is um, is leveraging our resources to do good. Um, that can be sometimes on behalf of individual clients. We just did a clemency hearing on behalf of a. Um, a woman who 26 years ago killed her abuser mm-hmm. um, in self-defense, uh, and um, she was represented at trial. There was an intern in the public defender's office who was did the opening statement, mm-hmm. uh, and she was convicted of second-degree murder. Um, it was an incredibly compelling story. She really her life turned around after about 15 years in a really miraculous way. Um, she's incredibly compelling, and just the sort of human interaction between our lawyers and her is is what I really love that mm-hmm. that when you really know you've helped someone it's incredible um, and so there's that and at the same time there's also you know we do a lot of impact work so we're just um, we finished uh, recently a class action on, on behalf of prisoners with serious mental illness in Illinois where we've really reformed how these people are treated and before it was inhumane mm-hmm. 
Um, and now, you know, through our work, and we really were lead counsel, um, and, and I'm just in, I'm incredibly proud of that yeah. and thrilled to be involved. So that's my favorite part. Uh, my least favorite part is um, is how inefficient the whole pro bono access to justice system is mm-hmm. and that um, it's a constant struggle to be effective because of how disorganized the whole system is. Um, having been in, you know, in government, which is known as, you know, not necessarily the most efficient way to allocate resources necessarily, um, it was way more efficient and effective and organized than sort of the private charitable system that we have for giving access to justice. Mm-hmm. So that's incredibly frustrating for me. Um, and what is your um, kind of favorite moment as a lawyer throughout your whole career, if you had to pick one? I know I know exactly when it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I had two I had two favorite moments. Okay. Um, my small favorite moment was when I represented a woman who um, had um, applied to live in the um, Robert Taylor Homes. Robert mm-hmm. Taylor Homes was one of the worst public housing um, gigantic. Uh, developments that was in Chicago. Chicago in the late 50s and early 60s built these monstrously huge housing developments and then just warehoused poor people in them and they were a disaster for all sorts of reasons. She wanted to move in and she was rejected. Mm-hmm. And I remember we got, and this was actually, this is when, um, this is a, it was a pro bono case, but I, it came from my old friends at LAF. Oh, okay. um, and they were sort of, you know, as a legal aid lawyer, you're confronted with all sorts of misery <laughs> every day. But this one was particularly bizarre because this was a place that people were desperate to to leave. Mm-hmm. Yet she wanted to live there and had been rejected. So they asked me to take on this um, appeal. And I represented her at the appeal. And I was still pretty young at the time. I probably was still in my, my, my 20s. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and uh, it it went very well. We had figured out uh, some sort of legal theory that gave her relief and, you know, prepared her and all. And as we were leaving, um, I, I, you know, I, I sort of turned to her and I said, I thought that I thought that went very well. And she burst into tears. Mm-hmm. And, and now I, what I would do, I would just hug her because now I'm older and more confident and all. And I was sort of yeah. didn't know what to do. Right. And I said, well, you know, what's wrong? And she said, I, that's the seventh time I had an appeal hearing for this. And that was the first time they treated me like a human being. Oh, wow. And that's because yeah. I was there as her lawyer. Mm-hmm. So my favorite moment as a, as a lawyer was when I helped someone else feel more like a human being and forced the government to treat her like a human being. I mean, it's outrageous that there are people who are not treated like a human being. She wasn't, mm-hmm. and through my fairly meager legal skills, <laughs> she was. Right. And I've held on to that moment ever since. Oh, that's really inspirational. Yeah. And you said you have a bigger story as well. Well, my bigger my bigger one was um, was when I was in the uh, Illinois Attorney General's office. I was um, asked to lead this effort about utility rates in Illinois, uh-huh. which were going to skyrocket for a long, complicated reason. And we had this great lawyer in our office who created a strategy, and I was sort of just the 
sometimes the face of that. But we finally, we sued and pursued the utility companies all over federal court and state court and administrative hearings and all. And finally, we had to come to Jesus meeting uh, where they said, all right, we give up. What do you need to settle? And I got to look at the CEO of a very large utility company and say uh, that on behalf of the people of the state of Illinois, we were going to need a $4 billion refund. And he swore at us and uh-huh. walked out and all. And that night, we uh, we finished drafting a windfall profits tax uh-huh. that would have cost his corporate parent about $800 million a year. The next morning, we got it out of committee, uh, and it was going to the House floor for a vote. He denounced us as Stalinists in a press conference, uh, and we ultimately settled for a billion-dollar refund. Where they paid to the the twelve million ratepayers in Illinois, mm-hmm. um, and so that was a thrill. Yeah, it was yeah. a thrill. You know, that was a huge impact. It was a thrill just because I could. I had to practice to say the four billion without seeming like Doctor Evil. <laughs> um, so, uh, but that was a huge moment, um, and yeah, so that's yeah. a favorite, but not not nearly as much as the right. helping someone to feel like a human being. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, so moving on, you are also the current president of the Association of Pro Bono Council, which, which you mentioned. Um, so can you talk about the organization, uh, what it does, and its role in the community? Sure. So um, ABCO was formed about 10 years ago um, by Pro Bono Council at five different firms. Um, Angela Vahiel from Baker McKenzie, uh, Maureen Elger from Cooley, Amanda Smith from Morgan Lewis, um, uh, Sarah Lynn Cohen from Sherman and Sterling and Greg McConnell from Winston and Strawn. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there were there were less than 50 uh, people working full time mm-hmm. running their pro bono programs. And it was still a very new position right. um, in the legal world. And the idea was that sort of two things. One was just sort of professional development. Like people had these roles. It was a very new job. And we needed to support each other to um, to learn how to do the job better. And that has worked out very well. I mean, 10 years later, we have um, upwards of 175 members at over 100 firms Mm -hmm. in the US, the UK, and Australia. Um, But the other thing that has happened and has taken on even more significance is that we collaborate on pro bono and access to justice. So we know as the full-time Council partner directors. We have all we have many different titles, but essentially we're all pro bono council. Mm-hmm. Um, we know how pro bono works within firms. We know how it works within our firms, and what we've been doing more and more is collaborating to really drive pro bono in a, in, in a direction that is more effective and has more impact and helps the community more. Um, and I find that thrilling. As I said before, my you know, the least favorite aspect of my job is the sort of horrible inefficiency yeah. of the system. And we're, ABCO is working to make it work better. Um, so for example, you know, one of the issues, um, you know, when, whenever there's a legal crisis, um, lawyers at law firms um, and firm leaders and management want the firms to get involved. So that that could be something like Guantanamo, uh, or it could be um, you know a natural disaster mm-hmm. like you know Superstorm Sandy, or um, it could be the Middle East refugees. Mm-hmm. And and one of the challenges is is that 
if, if we don't collaborate, we're all pro bono counsel running around having conversations with legal aid executive directors or, you know, PBI or whoever, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what to do. And instead, what ABCO does is we serve the function of we get together and discuss what we can do. So we're not all reinventing the wheel. Yeah. We're all not all being individual charitable actors. We're being a system, and mm-hmm. that's, that's really thrilling. And so, for example, on our ABCO board meeting this week, we're actually discussing um, uh, police violence and race. Uh-huh. Uh, we're cataloging opportunities that our members can, can get involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really fantastic because that brings the pro bono system, it helps to bring it closer to something that can can fairly be called a system, right. not just a bunch of well-minded people running around doing charitable works. Yeah, yeah. Does it take a lot of meeting um, to do that? It does. <laughs> um, the, rea- the reality is we are ABCO, um, though we have uh, we have nine projects, nine or ten projects around the country, mm-hmm. which are active legal aid, collaborative legal aid organizations. Uh, uh, projects, pro bono projects where firms are collaborating. Uh, We put out a newsletter. We put on, we have multi-day conferences for our members. We don't have paid staff. Right. Uh, So it does take a great deal of work. We have an executive committee uh, made up of five and then a a board of 15. We meet weekly and it does take a lot of time, but it's totally worth it because first of all, it's a great group of people. you know, I like to think the pro bono counsel attracts, you know, very public interest minded, very uh, high quality lawyers yeah. uh, and good people. And so it's a very good group of people to work with. But it's just um, thrilling to be able to collaborate to move the system forward. So in the firm's uh, release for its 2015 Global Social Impact Report, you have the mm-hmm. following quote. Um, you say, corporate social responsibility is an intrinsic part of Denton's positive and forward-thinking culture. Our pro bono work not only contributes to our professional development and our lawyers and other professionals' desire to make a lasting and positive impact on their communities, but also reinforces our entrepreneurial approach to solving problems in today's complex world. Um, so mm-hmm. can you kind of explain this a little further and what this means? Sure. So um, that's trying to touch on sort of a number of different things. But the biggest part, so the entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. part of it, um, why that's significant for us, again, goes back to our 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 polycentrism, which is that the firm doesn't decide what pro bono work we're going to do because we're in and of the community. So what may be important to our Warsaw office may not be important to our Amman office or our Chicago office. And so the idea is we want things to be created organically and entrepreneurial. We want our lawyers to be able to think, what do I care about? What am I interested in? And then we want them to figure out how to get involved. We're not, again, we're not like, you know, I I sort of thought when I started this job or before I started this job that I was going to kind of be the like assignment Uh uh, person, that I would find out about opportunities and I would just assign people. Oh, you're interested in pro bono work? Here's something for you to do. And I quickly realized that's not how my my firm operates. My firm operates um, on the principle that our lawyers figure out what they want to do. Um, and so there's also, obviously, there's, there's tremendous benefits, sort of professional development benefits to doing um, pro bono work and all that. But the reality is what that refers to is our focus on letting our people 
develop what they wanted to develop where they are. Mm -hmm. And how do you um, how do you go about kind of gauging where interest lies and and what gauging where interest lies? Mm -hmm. Do you have like Uh, outreach to the attorneys or? Yes, we do. So we have so we have a sort of a web of different committees. Um, we have a I mean, we have a U.S. pro bono committee. Uh, we have a global pro bono committee that has two members from each region of our firm and our region. So I, I think literally no one would be involved. No one would be interested in hearing a, a lot of the details about the Swiss Verine corporate structure. <laughs> but essentially, we have sort of a parent board, and underneath it are subsidiaries, yeah. and the subsidiaries are regions. So we have the U.S. region, we have the Europe region, we have the U.K. region, we have the Canada region. So each of those has their own pro bono structure, and then we have a global one um, overlaying that. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the, the purpose also of our global social impact report that mm-hmm. captures things that we're doing, pro bono work that we're doing, work, community service work that we're doing in all of our regions. Right. Um, and the idea is you want to have, you know, you want to have as many people as you can with their sort of ear to the ground, mm-hmm. figuring out what people want to do in the regions. Yeah, definitely. And in some other reading I was doing, I also saw a place where you say um, that the heart of Denton's global social impact program is this question of how can we help? Um, yeah. So can you elaborate on what this means and how you assess social impact? Yeah, so so um, it's sort of the flip side of the we want our people to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. We also realize that we're not going to know Yeah. often, right? That, um, yeah, I mean, I work in the Willis Tower, the Sears, Sears Tower in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, low-income people don't walk into the Sears Tower looking for lawyers, right? Right. We rely on legal aid organizations, and in Europe and across the globe, we rely on NGOs that have identified a need. Mm-hmm. So, what, so what we do, if we're interested in an issue, we don't ask our lawyers, who are very busy <laughs> doing billable work, mm-hmm. we don't say, oh, you're interested in an issue? All right, now go figure it out. Go figure out all the nuances and figure out what an effective strategy would be to address that issue. Instead, what we do is oh, what we'll find out what are you interested in, and then go find the NGO, go mm-hmm. find the legal aid organization, go find the advocacy organization that's involved in that issue, and then we say how can we help? Yeah, how does the firm go about kind of measuring social impact and, and assessing the impact that it's well? Having? That's so measuring social impact is a huge challenge. Yeah. Um, you know, as I go around to the you know the PBI conference or the Equal Justice Conference or various access to justice conferences, the PillNet conference in Europe, things like that, there's always a discussion about how to measure impact. Mm-hmm. And I, I, there isn't an especially good measure yet. You know, law firms obviously measure involvement by hours, yeah. and that obviously doesn't address impact. I, I mean, essentially what, what we do is, um, I mean, we're always looking to, to have more impact but really, again, what we do is we rely on our legal aid, NGO, nonprofit partners. Mm-hmm. Are they coming back to us and asking us to do more? Right? If they don't, we know that we probably were not all that helpful. Right? right? It wasn't worth it. They're all under-resourced and underfunded. Mm-hmm. They need to be savvy about who to work with. Uh-huh. So when we have our partners come back to us, and say, oh, you know, the, your amicus brief uh, in the uh, Seventh Circuit um, uh, abortion case 
um, we wrote an amicus brief on, be- on behalf of the uh, American College of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Mm-hmm. It was very effective. It was quoted by Judge Posner several times in his majority opinion. All right, now we're looking for amicus briefs in the United States Supreme Court mm-hmm. uh, for the Texas case. So when they come to us, based on our earlier work, we know we're, we're having a major impact because they exist solely to advance uh, an issue on behalf of their community. Right. You know, so LGBT issues. We, for example, I mean, we just hired um, Evan Wolfson, who is the um, sort of the, the father of the marriage equality movement, mm-hmm. uh, and he's going to be working part-time with the firm. And again... Um, if we weren't being, if we weren't be having a meaningful impact, he, he wouldn't do that. Right, right. Because that's what he cares most about. Yeah. Um, and so we rely on sort of feedback. Um, I'd love to say that we had a much more systematic way of getting feedback from all of our clients or all of our all the legal aid organizations. The reality is we don't. There are there are firms that do a much better job of that of measuring and all. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is that we don't because we haven't devoted the resources to it. I don't know that it would materially affect that much yeah. um, because that's one of the reasons why the position of pro bono counsel exists, which is to have a sort of point of contact for the firm so that <clears throat> NGOs and, and nonprofits and legal aid organizations know who to reach out to right. to make sure that you know the, the clients are being served. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not exactly no news is no news is good news. But I would never claim that we have a like fully robust scientific way of of measuring our impact. Mm-hmm. So, in an article you wrote about, um, it was about encouraging law firm leaders to support pro bono mm-hmm. work. You said there are essentially two basic types of strategy um, that pro bono partners can use uh, to kind of encourage collaboration with management. And so, one is the heart approach, and the other is the head slash wallet approach. Um, so, can you mm-hmm. explain these two strategies, how they're used, how, right. and how the firm uses them? Yeah. So. Um, it's good this isn't a Supreme, you know, the confirmation hearing for a Supreme Court justice. So um, <laughs> my thinking has evolved a little bit on this point. Uh-huh. Um, I still believe, I and mean, there are different ways of looking at sort of how to motivate or how you explain to management why pro bono is important. Uh-huh. Um, and it, it tends to go in sort of waves and fads. Right. There was, um, you know, originally there was just sort of, well, pro bono, there's a need out there. And there's sort of an ethical obligation of us lawyers. We're the keepers of the justice system. We're the only ones who can appear in court on behalf of someone else. And, and if there are people who can't afford lawyers, we should provide them. And that's sort of, that's sort of the heart. That's the ethical obligation. All yeah. that. Well, it turns out that that doesn't necessarily move everyone. And so then came the development of the business case. The business case for pro bono. Mm-hmm. And part of the business case, which is obviously, I was thinking very much is that's the head wallet. Mm-hmm. Part of the business case is the professional development of especially associates, yeah. right? Because as time has gone on, clients, paying clients are less willing to pay for uh, junior associates to be trained mm-hmm. since when they come from law school, they're they don't know very much about how to be a lawyer. Yeah. In the good old days, you know, those clients would just pay the bills that had these first-year associates on the matters, essentially just being trained. Mm-hmm. Um, clients don't want to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's a challenge to get, uh, get practical experience for junior associates. So pro bono can provide, as long as it's well-supervised, yes. can provide those opportunities. That's great. Um, 
pro bono is you know very good usually for the firms um, the firms branding you know firms like to be branded as being involved in the community and, and advancing pro bono mm-hmm. but it turns out and it, it's also described it's very good for it's it very good for morale and recruiting um, but it turns out that um, the heart is a much bigger piece of it and the reason we know that is because um, uh, and, 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 it, and we think the heart is a bigger piece of it and that focusing on that uh, will engender support from firm management for the following reasons. So most of us who run around and are very involved in pro bono usually say like, well, well, we know why people do pro bono. You know, certain associates want to get training, some people strongly, there's all these different sort of rationales. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Jennifer Cronman uh, and uh, Brenna Devaney, who are pro bono counsel at um, Clear Gottlieb and Skadden, mm-hmm. decided, you know what, I'm going to do a survey and ask our associates why they do pro bono work and why they don't. Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's like, really? Well, huh. <laughs> uh, and, um, and it turns out, they've, and now this has been replicated at a few other firms, this uh-huh. used the survey, and it's, it's, it's produced roughly the same results. Is there sort of 12 different choices about why associates do pro bono work? The number one answer and the answer that gets around 65%, which is a very large number when you have 12 choices, mm-hmm. um, is that doing pro bono work makes me feel good as a lawyer. Wow. That's wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So <laughs> it makes people feel good. And when they feel good, they're more productive yeah. and happier, and they stay in their jobs because mm-hmm. attrition is a huge problem at law firms. Mm-hmm. So, wow. So pro bono work feels good, and it makes our lawyers happy to be lawyers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot there in the world that makes people happy to be lawyers because <laughs> you get so much grief and jokes and ah ha ha ha. They're not; those jokes are never about lawyers doing pro bono work, obviously, right, right. Um, and they're not about public interest lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, but pro bono makes them feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very important. That's very important information, and actually that. Um, that amateur uh, scientific research that um, that Brenna uh, Devaney was leading um, is now actually turning into a full-blown academic study of this oh, nice. um, yeah. with an academic group that is that is looking at that issue. So now we we know a little more about um, what motivates associates, mm-hmm. um, and so that. If I were to rewrite that article, I would talk about this more because having data about that um, moves uh, firm leadership, I think, in more of a way than just talking about professional development. They're just talking about helping associates meet certain competencies yeah, yeah. to find out really sort of what is the core value for associates is very important. Mm-hmm. So another um, kind of similarly related struggle can be getting partners to do more pro bono. Um, Mm. And I've heard that you have a good story about getting a partner who hadn't done much of any (laughs) pro bono work um, involved. It's your hell is frozen over story. So I was wondering if you could share that. (laughs) Sure. So so, um, uh, when I, not long after I started um, 
And part of what I you have to do is just meeting people. Mm-hmm. And we just – so eight years after I started, we merged – seven and a half years. We merged with a firm called McKenna Long and Aldridge in the U.S. And much of this year is traveling to these new offices and meeting our lawyers, mm-hmm. finding out what they like to do. You know, what, how are they involved in the community and all. So um, shortly after I started uh, in Chicago, there, um, I was meeting everyone and talking to associates. And there were several associates who um, were very enthusiastic about pro bono work, um, but they said they weren't doing any because the senior partner who they worked for, um, they were part of a team, didn't do any pro bono work and didn't support it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, so I sort of looked into the situation. It turns out that partner billed about 2,600 hours every year. Oh, wow. She had three kids. She was very involved in her mm-hmm. family. And she's crazy busy. busy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also had a book of business of like five to ten million dollars. Oh wow! <laughs> uh, so she's important to the firm, and I knew the firm was not um, was not going to suggest to her that she should go somewhere else if she didn't do pro bono work. Mm-hmm. But I went and talked to her, and I said, "Listen." I said all that. I said, listen, my my understanding is the firm's never going to uh, say boo about you not doing pro bono work because you bill a zillion hours and you make a lot of money for the firm mm-hmm. and you're devoted to your family and God bless you. But there are these associates who work for you who um, who would like to do pro bono work and they think you don't want them to do pro bono work. She said, well, that's not true. Mm-hmm. They can. I mean, they have a lot of billable work to do, but if they want to also do pro bono work, they should. So she then sent them an email that said um, the subject was hell, hell has frozen over. Uh, and it was hell has frozen over. Uh, I'm going to do pro bono work, and you should too. And that, um, the, first, the first thing she did was actually election protection work oh, in the 2008 election. Oh, nice. Which, not surprisingly, was very popular in Chicago. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and since then, she's developed a real pro bono um, docket. Oh, wow. She does, there's a settlement project in Chicago that's run by the federal court through a, a non, for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and lawyers can uh, be appointed for the limited purpose of, of negotiating settlements. Mm-hmm. And it's very helpful because pro se or unrepresented prisoners, for example, have no ability to negotiate a settlement with the, uh, with the government. Right. She loves those cases. She's won awards for them. She's now on the board of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights. She's an active wow. member of the board. And it's and the associates, all of those associates, some of whom are now partner, uh-huh. do pro bono work. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and so that gave me that – and that story has been very effective because when there are partners who say, look, I'm very busy. I built 2,100 hours last year. I was like – well, that is very busy, but just so you know, right. <laughs> Donna Vabornik built a lot more, mm-hmm. and she does pro bono work. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, that's such a great story. <laughs> yeah. This goes to show, yeah. So this is a question we get asked a lot, and I'm sure you do too, uh, but what advice do you have for those who want a job running a pro bono program at a major law firm? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I do get that question a lot. Um, mm-hmm. I get it less than I used to because I used to be willing to talk to anyone who wanted to ask about it. Um, and so, I mean, the main advice, so I remember someone asking me as a junior lawyer who was a friend of associate, I think, at the mm-hmm. firm, he was like, and he said like, oh, I hate being a lawyer, but I'd love to do what you do. Mm-hmm. And I thought in my head, you're, not, you're disqualified. <laughs> you, you, you shouldn't do this right, and right. you will have no hope of doing this because I think to, 
to be in one of these positions, you have to really love practicing law. Yeah. Because we touch a bazillion different kinds of matters and cases. You have to be interested in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think you have to be really dedicated to um, pro bono or access to justice. Yeah. You have to really, I mean, to do this job well, you have to, you have to be valuable to your firm. So if you think of like when the firm was interviewing me and several other people, um, they obviously liked that I'm chatty, (laughs) Um, but they liked my, in my connections and involvement in the legal aid world. Mm -hmm. Obviously I had deep relationships in Chicago and then I had government relationships as well. So what I would tell people is, um, you know, do really well in law school and pick what you want to do. You could be, you know, there's many routes to this job. I mean, the majority of, of ABCO members who are lawyers were associates at their own firm. Okay. And then were eventually hired after they became partner, after they left and came back, whatever, as pro bono counsel. That's the majority. Um, but there are plenty of people who were legal aid lawyers, mm-hmm. who were public interest lawyers. I mean, the guy we're hiring as our pro bono director in Europe uh, has been the sort of program director at a large NGO mm-hmm. in Europe, um, a clearinghouse for pro bono. So, um, but but you have to really be, um, you, you know, you have you have to love what you're doing uh, and be very good at it, mm-hmm. um, and then try to have a combination of public interest and law firm work Um, because then you'll be really valuable to your law firm and you'll have credibility with the people because these people are really busy the lawyers at our firm Mm -hmm. and so the the pro bono council needs to be hip to that and needs to be sensitive to it Uh, and so if you've been an associate or partner in a law firm that's helpful yeah right but you also need to really know the legal aid world because that's helpful kind of related. So I'm asking this partially in self-interest since I'm about to go to law school. Um, but what advice do you have for new law students? Um, do you really want to be a lawyer? And then, I mean, you know, it's, um, it used to be that there are plenty of bright people who, um, I mean, the first advice is do really well in college. Take a good LSAT prep course and do really well in your LSAT because you can get into a a better law school, which will position you to have more opportunity and more choice about what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it used to be, though, that it was sort of a law degree was sort of a fallback. I don't know what I want to do. I'm either going to go to law school or business school. Yeah. Eh, but and the reason that was okay, especially if you had, you know, if you had done really well in college and had gone to a, um, a very good college, is that you could get a job after law school. And then figure out what you want to do. Maybe you'd figure out that you want to do that. But in this day and age, that's much less true. So what I say is be sure you want to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, you may not know what kind of lawyer you want to be, but be sure you really want to be a lawyer. Because this is hard work. Mm-hmm. It's really hard work. Um, and if you're not sure you want to be a lawyer, you're not going to really do want to do that hard work. And then you're not going to succeed. And then that's going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. But I love being a, I love being a lawyer, so I think law school is a blast. Great. Well, thank you for that. That's helpful for myself and sure. for many others out there. Um, Excellent. So to wrap things up, I have two somewhat more 
quirky questions for you. Um, so right. one is who is your pro bono role model and why? I have who I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and that was Thurgood Marshall. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was an incredible role model, although it turns out when I became a lawyer, I didn't want to do exactly that kind of work. And of mm-hmm. course, he had already done that kind of work. Um, so, um, so my role model then became um, some of the lawyers at LAF who had started in the neighborhood and then had moved on and made huge impacts. Um, and then my, one of my role models was my mentor at my law firm, Jenner and Block, David Bradford, who is literally the nicest, kindest, professional person I've ever met. Um, and hugely successful, but also did a ton of really important pro bono work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in my law firm, my role models are, I go two ways. One is um, we have uh, senior partners, a guy named Jerry Wolf, who's in our Kansas City office, and Harold Hirschman in Chicago. They have both had magnificently successful legal careers. Mm-hmm. You know, very high performing, very well compensated. And they're both, Jerry's in his 70s, and I think Harold is getting there. And they now devote upwards of 1,000 hours every year to pro bono work. Wow. Jerry has his second death penalty case in the last 10 years that he's working on. He also has a docket of um, Vietnam-era uh, disability cases for veterans because mm-hmm. he was in the service during oh, Vietnam. Okay. Um, Harold Hirschman is the lead counsel on our prison reform case. Um, representing a class of prisoners with serious mental illness. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he has also a docket of individual cases on behalf of prisoners. So Mm -hmm. I love that idea in a law firm where you can be hugely successful, um, always do pro bono work throughout your career, but then as you get closer to the end of your career in the law firm, Mm -hmm. there is space for you to do this tremendous work. So that's one. The other role model, I will say, is um, some of our junior associates who – in many ways have the worst job at a law firm. Um, you know, as they say, blank flows downhill. Yeah. Uh, you, you, don't, you, you get the least responsibility on matters, and it's, you, know, you have to sort of spend several years before you start getting substantial responsibility. Mm-hmm. And they work really hard. And so we had two associates, Gail Eisenberg and Christine Schonbacher last year, who... Um, we were trying to, um, my colleagues and I in Chicago, pro bono counsel colleagues, were trying to get, um, we're trying to cut into a, um, a backlog of asylum cases that needed to be distributed to mm-hmm. law firms um, from the National Immigrant Justice Center. And Christine and Gail volunteered. It was last. It was last year. In fact, right around now, um, when I circulated some very you know, beautiful, compelling <laughs> requests that they take of these asylum cases. They agreed to take one, and I, Christine called me, and she said, uh, we're talking about it. I said, oh, well, by the way, when's the hearing? She said, oh, it's in September. And I said, all right, so you have plenty of time. She said, what do you mean you have plenty of time? It's in September of 2015. And I said, you, do you have a lot of time right now? She said, no, we're busy, but we're going to do this. And they yeah. represented this transgender woman from Mexico. And they had, for them, my story about helping someone feel like a human being, mm-hmm. they had that experience for their legal careers yeah. because they went to the hearing. They did a, m- a magnificent job of preparing it, and there was a great litigation partner who was supervising them. 
they went to the hearing, and our client really needed a translator. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes people who, for whom English is a second language can do without a translator or can't. She does not speak English. Yeah. Um, and so the hearing was, it was tough, but it went well. And at the end of the hearing, the judge granted asylum. But because, um, because of the translation need, they knew before their client knew that she had won. Okay. So they got that sort of looking at each other and, you know, squealing with delight and then got to pivot and look at their client as the translator informed her that she was not going to have to go home mm -hmm. to uh, Mexico and face violence and death and was going to get to stay in the United States. And she, of course, burst into tears yeah. of joy and relief and then came and hugged uh, Gail and Christine. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, they're my role models because they're the people who I need and, you know, to succeed. They, you know, they inspire me because they're so busy and they're young. Mm -hmm. They don't, you know, they don't know what they know yet. Yeah. They don't know what they want to do right, right. with their lives and careers exactly. But they're willing to, you know, work ridiculously long hours and dive into something and save a woman's life. And that's fantastic. That's amazing. Great. Well, thank you for sharing those. Um, that was a lot. That was a lot. <laughs> no, no, the more the better. <laughs> and if you had a, um, to finish up, if you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about access to justice? So I have the magic wand, mm -hmm. and I, I only get to change something about access to justice. Um, I would wave my magic wand and um, um, uh, fund, fully fund legal services. Mm -hmm. I would increase it, I don't know if it's tenfold or a hundredfold, uh, but that's what I would do. Yeah. And then i do lots of other stuff. And I, you know, I was just talking to someone playing the game of like, if you could have any superpower, what would you have? So, yeah. <laughs> but if I, my, if I had my access to justice wand, I would, I would, you know, make much better funding for legal services. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, Ben, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a, You're welcome. It's a pleasure to hear about all your varied experiences as a lawyer and what your firm does. It's really amazing. Thanks again for listening to our interview with Ben Weinberg. We thank Ben for sharing his stories and expertise with us. To listen to more podcasts, visit www.probonoinst.org podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Pro Bono Happy Hour on iTunes or YouTube. And please take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and help us expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.